Alrighty, welcome back to the uh, Corrective Culture Podcast. We have a very, very exciting episode today. We have the man himself, Matthew Walden. How are you, buddy? <laughs> Hiya, how you doing? Good, man. Really, good. really good. Yeah, we got a we got a glass of dragon's blood, it's called. It's organic wine here. Oh, it's, wow. It's dinner time here. Did you have to hunt it first? <laughs> Poor, yeah. Did, um, and it's, it's breakfast for you right now, isn't it? Over in London? It is. London? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I've been up for a couple of hours and I've been out. So we're actually having some building work done here this morning. So uh, I've been out in the garden and it's snowing here. So, uh, oh, so yeah, man. I've been out sort of shifting stuff, freezing my hands off. So just uh, sort of tingling back to life now. I've, uh, I've still <laughs> never seen snow yet, but i I got to do that. That's still like a dream for me. <laughs> you should do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, to, so for everyone to know, like I, I did a – Matt's – so you're the leader of Czech Education. Is that is that the – Sort of the title, yeah, yeah. The official title was head of education for the Czech Institute. Yeah, yeah. And so. um, and for can you just do a brief sort of introduction? Like, how how did you get into the industry? Because you started in as osteopath, is that right? Or is that's that- right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess uh, I guess for me it kind of started even as a teenager wanting to be involved in professional sports was my kind of goal. I was always quite sporty and you know, quite a good uh, soccer player, um, but not quite good enough to sort of, I, I kind of knew because I was playing with players in my early teens that were making it to professional level. And I was, you know, so I was in the same team and same kind of uh, arena as those guys. And I just knew I wasn't quite going to make that level. So I was thinking, well, you know, what should I do or how could I still be involved in football, which was my passion as a kid, you know, and um, and I thought, well, I could be a physio, you know, I could be a physio and I could work in the, the team. And, you know, as I kind of explored that whole world of physio, chiropractic, osteopathy, etc., the osteopathy just kind of, uh, I don't know, intrigued me the most. And so that was my kind of, you know, how, how I went into that field um, with that kind of sports orientation and then um yeah you know ultimately did the degree looked for opportunities did my research in professional football didn't really lead anywhere um in my first year I went to to New Zealand actually it was one of the places that as an osteopath you could go really easily because there were no colleges of osteopathy in New Zealand at the time so essentially if you've got a bunch of osteopaths there whose whose clinics are expanding then they need staff and of course they can't get staff locally so so they have to import them <laughs> and so and so in terms of a work visa much easier to get into New Zealand at that time than it was to get into Australia which had several of its own colleges and the same with the US and various other parts of the world so so I went to New Zealand in 97 and that's where I first met Paul Czech and uh, you know he was giving a free talk at a local rugby club and uh, you know it, it was talking about primal patterns and I thought that sounded quite interesting because I'd already always had a an interest in evolution and and how evolution informs you know, how we're, how we function in the modern day. And um, so I thought this primal patterns idea sounded good. Went to see him. I was quite impressed with what he had to say, but I didn't really sort of follow up on that uh, sort of line of inquiry at that point. Um, But I came back to the UK and did a master's degree again to try and get involved in sports. Um, And again, researched this time hamstring strain of professional footballers. And um, again, it didn't really seem to lead anywhere. But just after I finished the Masters, which was in 2000, that is while I was doing the Masters, I, um, I thought, well, this guy, Paul Czech, he knew a lot about sports injuries. He, he, you know, he, I, I was aware, obviously I'd seen him speak, but I was aware that he was working with the Chicago Bulls and with various other elite 
US and, and Australian sports teams, actually. I think Canberra Raiders were one of the teams that he worked with. Uh, and uh, I forget I forget who else he, he had worked with. But, but basically, you know, his resume was quite sports oriented. And I thought, OK, so he's going to know a thing or two about hamstring strain. So I actually got in touch with him and the Institute to try to find out, you know, if they could help with my thesis to some degree. Did they have any pointers? And it was when I got their scientific back training uh, video set through as it was then as a, as a VHS video set. And, um, and I was watching it. And I was thinking, my God, this guy is good. And, and it, you know, he is taking concepts that are just being published now, but literally, because, you know, this is 2000. So I'd done two research projects, one in 97, one in 2000. So it's kind of pretty much up to speed with research in our field and, and who the best researchers were and who people were going to, to, to sort of learn the most. And, and these guys were talking about the same kind of stuff as Paul, but Paul was just easily a few notches ahead of these guys in terms of how he's applying it. And I thought, wow, this, this guy is awesome. I looked at the date that he recorded the videos and it was 1994. Yeah. And this is 2000. I'm thinking, wow. So he was doing this stuff like 10 years ago, essentially, to, to, to be able to record videos this good in 94. So, you know, that was me kind of sold on, on his credibility. Um, and then I heard he was coming to the UK the next year, 2001. And, and so I booked onto his course and that's kind of where the whole check journey started. So, yeah, that's, so I'll let you guys speak for a bit. <laughs> that's, no, that's perfect, man. That's, that's amazing. I was actually looking at the notes that I, um, I took down when I was doing your workshop. So I did, I did, if people listening, Matt's workshop in Sydney, it was persistent, pain basically it was a whole workshop on persistent pain and just so you know thank you so much because that has been huge huge for my like personal like our business has gone through the roof here locally on the sunshine coast and and around like sort of australia people are grabbing onto it and um yeah and and then we got people from like from uk from denmark from the states everyone's messaging us thinking that we're the first sort of dudes because we're a couple of young dudes doing it. You know what I mean? But I'm like, <laughs> awesome. you just awesome. stand on the <laughs> shoulders of the rest. And how, how I took so much away from that. And I even went back through my, through my notes and I was like, man, there's just, there's stuff we could talk on for fucking hours. Like that. I, I really resonated with <laughs> yeah. like, and just because you spoke about that, like I, I realized I wrote down, you know, quad dominance is uh, highly linked to hamstring injuries that you must've mm. said somewhere along the line with that um is yeah, it can, yeah yeah is it can you elaborate on that just a little bit on just that one because we've got so many people yeah, yeah. that just you know yeah well so some of the research in the 90s uh, that i was looking at when i was doing my master's thesis uh, was was looking at the idea that people get hamstring strains because they're quad dominant and, and the way they were talking about it at that point in time was really uh quite kind of non-functional in terms of, you know, th- there was new gadgetry available, especially in professional sports, these isokinetic dynamometers where you could measure, uh, you know, hamstring strength versus quadriceps strength. So essentially that the hams quads ratio and essentially you want, you want the, the hamstrings to be about 75% the strength of the quads and, and maybe as low as 60%, but it, when it starts to get below 60%, then, then there's a big imbalance. And so that would be termed, quad dominance in that kind of uh, arena, if you like. Um, and so the idea being that, of course, if you've got an imbalance between the two, then, then uh, you know, you can create, because they're antagonists, one stronger than the other, it can create strain in the weaker group. So 
so that was one line of inquiry, but it was only really when I started doing the Czech training um, that I started to understand what quad dominance looks like in terms of the way people run, in terms of the way they lunge, in terms of the way they move, you know, they squat, etc. And so, you know, then I started looking for it uh, from 2001 really onwards in my clients. And, and what you start to see is you know, a very strong correlation between quad dominance and injury um, to the extent that, you know, someone might get, let's say, a right knee injury um, and you assess their lunge on the right side versus on the left side and you can see that well the right-sided lunge is quad dominant and the left side isn't you know so and, and you know you could argue well is that is that a kind of cause or an effect but again when you work with people for long enough and work with enough people you start to see that it predisposes people to injury and just biomechanically it makes sense that it would do anyway because any kind of imbalance you know especially in a agonist antagonist relationship like the quads and the hams that will create shear at, at the knee joint right um and so uh so yeah so that's that's essentially what it refers to um but it's not just the hamstrings it, it also ties in with the glutes as well so you know when because the glutes and hamstrings are extensors of the hip and quads are extensors of the knee well, if the, the, the hamstrings and glutes especially aren't doing what they're supposed to, perhaps because they're inhibited or they're deconditioned or just weak, then what that means is that the quads will try and, uh, you know, compensate for that. Um, and so then you see people, for example, you know, squatting with more knee bend and less hip flex, yeah. as an example. Yeah. Um, and so then that puts a lot more, again, this is, this is kind of the concept of load sharing. So it's load sharing between muscles and load sharing between joints. And so, you know, someone who is quad dominant will tend to put more stress into their knees and less into their hips. Yet the hip is an incredibly strong joint. Uh, and of course, the glutes are incredibly strong muscle when they're conditioned and firing appropriately and so on. So, so you know, you're not, you're not realizing your potential as an athlete, or, you know, and in the Czech system, we say everyone's an athlete, just kind of depends on, you know, your athletic requirements, uh, give, you know, in, in any given task. But, but the... The, the, the point being that, you know, you're increasing your risk of injury and, and decreasing your potential uh, for performance. So, so that's kind of uh, I remember a, a, a bit, a bit of info. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause we I, could keep going. If you want. Yeah, cause <laughs> I remember I asked when I first got into this, I, I, I sat down with Donald and I go like, mm. where do I, where do I go? You know what I mean? Do I, do I read this book and that book or like, where did you, mm. where do I begin to start learning? You know what I mean? Yeah. And he just said, yeah whoever the best people in the world are, go hang out with them. And I was just yeah. like, and I was like, that resonated with me. Cause then when you came to Sydney, I was like, Oh, Walden's come to Sydney. I was like, this is my field. You know, this is what I want to be good at. <laughs> so, you know, it's <laughs> an expense that's, you know, nothing to me, a thousand dollars flights and bookings and things like that. And I get to <laughs> hang out with you for a few days compared yeah, to, yeah. um, compared to like sort of reading a book and, and getting so much out of it, but really getting the gems of wisdom that I got. And it's so much that I, even this like things that I was sort of doing, but now I can explain it better to my clients yeah. and pretty well regurgitate what you told me and sound like it's coming. Yeah, from yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but man, like, um, so one of the biggest things I, I took away for healing, like for helping my business was, um, uh, realizing the benefits, make the benefits real. And that was, that, oh, was, yeah. that was huge. That was huge. I think one, I told my dad and he wrote it on a big, uh, I think I might've sent it to a big, um, what do you call it? Uh, mandala and wrote it in the middle. Right, right. And then it was sitting in our <laughs> space for a while. Yeah. So I could see it. And 
and I could, um, you know, remember to tell people why they're doing it instead of just saying, yeah. do this stretch, do this deep tissue release saying, oh, this is doing this, this, that. And I remember your analogy was, uh, when you're saying just like doing knee rocking on the ground and you could tell someone just doing knee rocking or you could say, well, see how it's palpating the left and the right side of your lumbar vertebrae and you got a disbulge. So this is bringing, you know, f- blood flow back to it and then you're getting an awareness of the spine and all this. And I was just like, man, that's, that's gold. And, um, and yeah, I also, yeah, yeah. I also, also talk about how you gave us an analogy when we were going into levels, the models of conscious development. And I got it actually right yeah. here in front of me, your booklet. Okay. Oh, right. And, okay, good. And, um, <laughs> and how... If we get stuck, we can refer to it. <laughs> <laughs> and how... And now I'm seeing it more and more so that if, if this test isn't showing it or if the... Yeah. Um, then, it, then it's not real. And I feel mm. like it was perfect with the universe because literally the week after I left uh, your, your seminar, I, I got a client and she was extremely damaged right she she pretty mm. i remember i think you said gave me advice she needed cross body pattern but she couldn't she could barely right, walk yeah, yeah. right she could barely walk that's it yeah, yeah yeah um and the doctors didn't know what was wrong with her so since yeah. she had a whole team in this hospital right she she all of a sudden couldn't feel feeling in her legs she didn't know when she was going to the toilet things like that and she yeah. had a lot of trauma and um and they told her she had thick blood and no one asked her if she right. drank water you know what i mean so there's like there's yeah, like yeah, 10 yeah, people yeah. around not asking like oh you got thick blood you genetically got thick blood so i was like oh shit like <laughs> i didn't even know i was like surely you're not drinking water your blood volume thickens and i just did a quick google and i was like yeah that happens and then i hit yeah. her up was like you drink water and she's like nah not really so yeah. man she drank uh water and did a feldenkrais shoulder spine integrator just to simulate a bit of gait and she healed rapidly really quickly you know mm. but just from you know what i mean what i learned from you and then the next week it was like the universe gave that to me like now use yeah, what you yeah. um but this is an example of simplicity in the complexity right there's always simplicity in the complexity of things and and sometimes just drinking water is the thing that tips the balance um or you know like you say feldenkrais if you were to watch someone doing it and not know what they're doing you think they're doing nothing you know they're, what they're doing they're just rocking on the ground you know like a baby uh, like what's what's that got to do with anything but when you understand, and this kind of relates back to what you're saying about realizing the benefits makes the benefits real, that, that sort of phrase, which I, obviously I used as a title for one mm. of my, my little papers I, I wrote. So. But, but so th- what that's pointing to is the idea of, you know, what some people call placebo, which has got a bit of a bad rap because placebo sounds like you're tricking someone, right? Um, and, and it can be used in that way. But the, the phrase that's used more in the research these days is a positive context effect. Right. So essentially what you're doing is you are creating a positive framing of the situation for the individual. So they start to understand how the water is going to benefit their blood. And then when their blood functions better, that's going to mean that everything functions better from organ health to nerve health to muscle health and, and so on. You know, so if you frame it up like that, then when they're drinking their water, they're kind of getting the magic of the water. They're thinking, oh, this is going to help everything. You know, it's going to make me feel better. We know that hydration makes people more anabolic. And when they're dehydrated, they're more catabolic. So, you know, you've got someone who's injured. The last thing you want is for them to be dehydrated because they're just not going to repair, right? So, so, but it's so super simple. It's just drinking a bit of water. But if you say, I'll just drink some water, you know, you, you should know that that's creating a negative context effect because you're kind of punishing them, telling them they're stupid. But when you create a positive context effect, now they kind of realize the magic of what they're doing and, and all of the knock-on benefits of it 
Um, and the Feldenkrais is the same thing. And when you explain to them, you know, lay on the floor. And what I want you to do is to just gently rock through this series of motions and feel for the range of motion. And that's improving your awareness. And when you feel it's a bit tight, then you can release that. Just let that go. So it's giving you the tools to allow yourself to, to let go of tensions in the system. And if you feel it's a bit hypermobile, well, then you can just tighten up around that segment. And, you know, these little rocking techniques, well, what they do is they activate the intrinsic muscles of the spine, which are the ones that stabilize the spine and keep you, keep you stable, keep you strong. And it's exactly how the nervous system programs itself during infant development. So we're tapping into that. And so then when they're laying there doing that Feldenkrais, they've got all of these thoughts going on like, oh, this is, this is how my nervous system gets programmed and this is how I can control this myself and it's a tool I can use so I'm empowered and I'm not dependent on this therapist or, or you know, whatever. So suddenly you've created a massive positive context effect. And of course, you're, that client's going to get better quicker than the one who's got a negative context effect, even though they do exactly the same thing, right? So that, and that kind of ties into the dimensional mastery model because not only... Are you working with the movement elements, but you're working with the mind and with the beliefs, right? Which is kind of the higher elements of the dimensional mastery. So you kind of, it's more holistic, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, that's one of those things I regurgitate in my notes. It was, um, it's mm. talking about how when you're dehydrated, you just basically compress. So then you're getting mm. laxity in the ligaments. So then you're getting a, a yeah. high chance of shearing. And I was like, man, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that, that's yeah, and it's not tall. just the disc, right? It's any joint. So yeah. it could be a knee joint or an ankle joint or a hip joint. You know, it, it, the whole body is sort of uh, constructed on hydrostatic pressure, right? Yeah. This idea that, the, the you know, bone sits on top of cartilage, which contacts with another bone, which has got cartilage. That's, that's not true at all. There, there's hydrostatic pressure, which keeps the bones and, the, and the, the joint surfaces away from each other. But when your body is dehydrated, like this woman with, thick blood in inverted commas, mm. you know, the, the, to, to survive, uh, you know, for, if you look at it from a kind of survival hierarchy perspective, the body is more interested in regulating blood pressure than it is in worrying about your knee joint or your low back, right? So it will do everything it can to optimize your blood pressure and your digestion and other sort of fluid dynamics like immune function, let's say, and it will borrow fluids from your joints or from your discs in order to achieve that. So if you're not drinking enough water, well, then you just borrow it out of your fluid reservoirs in the body, right? And same if you don't have enough calcium. You know, if you're too acidic, you borrow calcium out of the bones and that leads to osteoporosis, right? This is one of the, the classic things of the Western diet is it's so acidic that we're constantly borrowing calcium out of the bones. And by the time we reach our 60s or 70s, then osteoporosis is a, is a common thing, but not in hunter-gatherer societies, right? That doesn't really happen in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the same with, with joints as well. Joints are primarily made of sulfur, you know, glucosamine sulfate, chondroitin sulfate, that kind of thing. So when we are over toxic, when we borrow sulfur out of our sulfur-based tissues to run the sulfation pathway in the liver, so then we get degenerative joints, right? So, so the, the, the point being that, you know, if we see the body as a series of reservoirs and we keep those reservoirs topped up, with healthy foods and, and with healthy lifestyle practices, then we end up with a healthy body. But when we disregard certain things, certain simple things like hydration, well then, you know, there's a price to pay for that. So. Yeah. That's um, again, one of the things I took away, I'm just going to keep dropping these in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Go for it. it. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Cause it's good. Cause it's like, it's, it, you know, it lets you know that it's, it's cause you doing that helped me 
which then helps all these people, and then which I was then helps part of that. Yeah. <laughs> and then it helped me. Yeah. Yeah. And it helps these people, and that's yeah. the eye we all. And it's yeah. like that's in it right there. Yeah. But you get to see the connection. But it was um, yeah, yeah. Nothing makes sense in life except in the light of evolution. And I was like, yeah, fuck, that is that is the one because <clears throat> it's like yeah. And yeah. then and now I look at that through those eyes through anything through anything. Now I'm like, mm. even when the people I admire when they talk about say like uh, I listen to a lot of like Ben Greenfield read his book mm. and he's saying some things i'm like yeah i'll, I'll i'm not gonna say no but i'm not i'll i'll, I'll wait to um to judge that because it doesn't really make sense to me that this is this is not in the path of evolution so much and like your analogy yeah. was with yeah. the vibram five fingers and and yeah. how like when someone says you can have a nike you know two inch lift and it can make you propel through the space like this but that doesn't really make sense it's like the saying is my foot wrong you know is is my foot mm. wrong and, mm. and the same thing with nutrition like is uh, we're all these tribes wrong to get us here yeah, yeah, yeah. now now yeah. are we better so i was like that was and um, the thing the, the thing is i think as as humans we have a because because we are we have a level of intelligence right that that, that can strategize we have this kind of sense of hubris that we can essentially fix anything or make anything better and, uh, and that's kind of, you know, that's obviously a, a quality that we have as humans, but it's also a big downfall. And so, you know, the example you're giving with, with cushioned shoes, you know, it makes a lot of sense, right? You know, you want to minimize the impact. You put a cushion under your feet, right? That seems to make sense. Yeah. But when you actually do the research, what you find is that the nervous system needs to know where it's at in, in space. Okay. That's, that's essentially the function of the nervous system is like, you know, uh, am I about to fall down a hole? Am I about to walk into a tree? Am I, you know, so, so the, the eyes, the ears, the balance sensors, but also that the proprioception is telling you where you're at in space. So when you can't feel the ground, cause you've got a cushion between you and the ground, guess what? You hit the ground harder until you meet resistance. And so, and they've known that since the mid eighties, Nike have known that since, since the mid eighties and they've published it, you know, so it's not, there's no secret. Um, but interesting enough, after the minimalist kind of concept that, you know, w- was, I was, I was involved with, you know, it was popularized in the late noughties and into the early, you know, uh, teens of, of uh, the two, two, 21st century. Um, the maximalist sort of, footwear came out which is you know kind of the pendulum swinging from you know your standard running shoe to swinging to completely barefoot and then swinging all the way back to maximalists and what the maximalist guys were trying to do is trying to take what they considered the best of barefoot which was the idea that you know you don't have a heel drop so it, essentially one of the things with running shoes is that there's generally a drop from the heel to the forefoot so it creates this kind of loading of the forefoot which is another thing that ties back in with what we were talking about earlier, quad dominance, right? You know, yeah. most people's footwear encourages quad dominance because the minute you put a heel onto a shoe, it puts more load onto the forefoot. When you load the forefoot, it's, it excites the quadriceps more and switches off the glutes more, which is why high heels, stilettos, you know, they do that to an extreme. And of course that creates an anterior pelvic tilt. If your quads are excited and your glutes are switched off, and that's a sexual sign of receptivity for females. So it's a sign that the woman is sexually receptive. So, and, and that's the case across all the entire, um, uh, what's it called, class of, of mammals, right? When a female mammal is receptive, she sticks her tail up in the air, sticks her bum up in the air. So essentially goes into a lordosis to say, you know, I'm interested. 
right? Wow. That's cool. Wow. Stilettos do exactly that. They, they inhibit the glutes, they switch on the quads, tilts the pelvis forward. So even though the woman isn't sexually receptive necessarily, she looks like she is. So the guy's heads all turn. They're like, whoa, look at her. She's hot. She's essentially game, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what she's indicating by wearing the high heels. Now, obviously running shoes do that as well, but not to the same degree. In fact, pretty much any shoe does that. And the reason they do that is, is purely because when we walk, heel strike is the point of, of the gait cycle where we get the most impact, right? So guess where a shoe tends to wear out quickest? Well, on its heel, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. so, so what, what's the tradition? The tradition is let's make the heels a little bit thicker, right? Yeah. So then you end up with an unlevel shoe and you talk about people being well-heeled, meaning that they are wealthy or, or look after themselves, they're well-heeled. That's because they looked after their shoes and they could afford to get their shoes rehealed and so on. So there's this kind of, you know, in the English language, we've got this kind of, uh, you know, it alludes to the fact that people could look after their shoes and so on. But really what it means biomechanically is that you're just by wearing shoes, you're stimulating a quad dominant pattern, which then leads on to a whole plethora of sports injuries uh, and, you know, potential increased risk from injuries, um, Mm -hmm. as well as, like we said, decreased performance but I, did, I didn't finish talking about the um the maximalist so the maximalist shoes were the idea was that you take you'd have no heel right so essentially and what i mean by that is that it's super cushioned but it's completely flat from from heel to forefoot so there's no no drop as they call it heel drop um so that allows the mechanics to function optimally which is part of the argument for being barefoot or in minimalist shoes but of course what you lose is all the sensation what the Maxis guys were saying, but yeah, but it's like running on clouds. You know, you can't, you know, you're not going to get any impact. It's fantastic. When they actually research this, you get even more impact wearing a pair of Maximus shoes than you do in a pair of running shoes. And a pair of running shoes, you get about three times the impact that you do in a pair of minimalist shoes, right? Mm. So, so the, wearing the Maximus shoes actually broke the recording equipment they were assessing in the lab. A guy called, oh. uh, or a lady called Irene Davies was using accelerometer measuring equipment and uh, it couldn't even measure the impact it was so high with these maximalist shoes so it's, it's a classic example of the hubris of humanity thinking oh i've got an idea if we do this then you know we can make it better but the reality is is that you know they're, they're completely forgetting the way that we've evolved and this you know you, you'll probably remember me talking about panjabi's model Callan. Mm. you know where panjabi's model is this idea you've got the nervous system which obviously is, you know, regulating everything. You've got the active system, which is the muscles and the passive system, which is joints and discs and ligaments and so on, um, but doesn't actively contract, right? So it's passive. And so most sports injuries are to the passive subsystem. You do get some to the active, but they're mainly to the passive subsystem. So it's, it's, you know, it's joints, it's ligaments, it's tendons and so on, discs maybe. But in this, so this model, um, you know, is a very powerful and helpful model to use clinically. And if we look at it from a barefoot running perspective, well, of course, what you're doing when you go barefoot is you're optimizing the neural component because you can feel everything, right? So you can get all the information to the muscles that you need, and then that protects the passive subsystem. But if you can't feel anything, well, you've just dampened down your neural component. So what does the neural component try to do? It hits the ground harder to try and feel something, and in doing so ends up creating these massive impact forces. You know, so it's just... That's it's just true, us, yeah. you know, trying to be smart and ultimately falling on our backsides. <laughs> what do you reckon about um, basketball players? And you know how they're all into the Air Max and stuff like that. Yeah, do you yeah, reckon yeah. you could ever see yeah. a basketball player wearing like 
Vibram Five Fingers or something like that. Do you know, I've, I, I have been approached by some guys uh, that play quite a good level here in the UK, but also we, I forget, I think it was the Washington Wizards started using them uh, when I was, because I used to distribute the Five Fingers yeah. from 2007 to 2017 in the UK. Because awesome. um, the the story behind that was was just very briefly that, that essentially Vibram had created them really for the sensation of being barefoot and thought, well, maybe they'd be good for sailing, you know, but they hadn't realized there's any biomechanical benefits or performance benefits. And so I was one of the first people to kind of explain that to them. And ultimately that led into me becoming uh, the distributor to the UK market. But, but in, in that kind of liaison across the 10 years, um, yeah, certainly the Washington Wizards had them. We know that Shaquille O'Neal got, got a pair, but I don't think he, it was to play in. Yeah. He had a pair of size 23. <laughs> oh my god. 23 uh or 24 maybe I think it was actually. Um yeah. So uh so I think the thing with that is again, you know, you're doing something in basketball that's somewhat unnatural uh in terms of you know, a lot of high repetition jumping off a very hard surface. So you know, like all these things, you you can get you can get too evangelical about barefoot um, and say, oh, you know, you should use barefoot for everything, and that's probably not the case because a lot of the stuff we do, I mean, like like playing, you know, rugby for example, you could do that barefoot, um, but the minute it rains, you're going to start slipping, and when someone treads on your foot, it's going to, you know, there's going to be issues with going barefoot. Totally. Same with football, or soccer, you know, um, a lot of the best footballers in the world grew up barefoot, you know, and they yeah. play football barefoot on the beach. You know, Cristiano Ronaldo talks about that. Obviously, a lot of the Brazilians talk about it. Um, but the point being, so they've developed their skill there. But but if they then try to take that into La Liga or the Premiership or whatever, they, they just wouldn't get by because there's certain equipment you need to be able to sort of um, uh, effectively uh, compete in the arena that, that, that other people are competing in. Uh, but But, you know, that said... We, we were approached by um, when we were distributing the shoes. We were approached by um, I won't say his name, but he, he at the time was the British hundred meter champion uh, for uh, you know in men's athletics, um, and um, he had found that he was faster through the timing gates when he was barefoot than when he was in his running spikes. Wow. He just had tried it out a couple of times at training, but his concern was that he wouldn't be able to get out the blocks in time. So this kind of comes back to you know it might it might be that he's quicker barefoot which actually does make some sense because the nervous system stiffens the legs more when you're barefoot than when you're in a shoe. This is part of what we know in research. And there's only really two things you can effectively do to make yourself faster as a sprinter. One is to uh, improve your parents um, <laughs> yeah. and get better genetics, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is kind of tricky. Yeah. So you, you can work... You can... <laughs> You can try and work with that, obviously, to yeah. a degree, and, and you know, and you can get some training benefits from from trying to uh, switch your your type two A fibers more towards a type two B or type two X uh, sort of firing pattern. So you can get a bit faster in terms of muscle fiber distribution, but but really, it's about leg stiffness. So the stiffer your leg is, the quicker you'll move forwards, the quicker you'll be able to transfer loads forwards. And this is why I don't know if you remember Oscar Prestorius, um, the chap who ended up in jail uh, after <laughs> yeah. shooting his girlfriend yeah. but but prior to that was uh you know a very good athlete but but was trying to compete in the olympics so he had won the, the paralympics 100 meters several times over if i recall um maybe 200 meters um and he was he was applying to compete in 
the standard Olympics. And actually, the International Olympic Committee said, no, you, you can't because you've got an advantage because you've got carbon fiber legs. That's, that's wow. actually an advantage wow. because they're stiffer than human bone. Um, so it was so it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because you imagine yeah. Paralympics is, is a disadvantage. And of course, in, in many instances, it is. But when it comes to leg stiffness, it's, you know, a carbon fiber leg is, is an advantage compared to a, a bony leg. So, um, but I was telling you a story about, so this 100 meter sprinter approached us to say, super, super fast barefoot, but had a problem getting out the blocks. So he was wondering if he could use the Vibram Five Fingers to, to you know, get that traction out of the blocks that he needed um, and, and then still retain the, the barefoot benefits. So he, uh, he, he tried a bunch of different styles to ensure he'd get the right fit and, you know, felt sort of secure to his foot and um, was all keen to go with it. I was about to compete in the European Championships and as British number one, we had quite a good chance of winning. And um, his, his agent basically said to us, um, you know, so what, what's, what can you offer? And I, I said, well, you know, spoken with Ibram and, you know, kind of in the maybe tens of thousands um, for some kind of deal, you know, like 10 or, or 20 maybe. And he was like, you are way off the mark. It's hundreds of thousands Whoa. just for a footwear deal. Whoa. And you're like, okay. So <laughs> that's kind of interesting because, um, you know, so you've got a guy who essentially knows he's faster in our footwear yeah. and we're offering to pay him to wear them. And as a small company, they, they wouldn't have been able to pay a hundred thousand at that point in time. You know, they just, it would have been off the radar for them, but you know, maybe somewhere around 20 might have been doable. Um, and they just said no. And he came fourth ultimately in that in that uh, race. Try not to give it away who he was. Yeah. But but but, yeah. but point being that, that you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I won't tell you which year it was. Yeah. But, but so, but isn't that interesting? Yeah. That you know, it's a yeah. great example of where money talks more than performance. You know, so when you get to that level, and it's not, on the one hand, it's understandable because if you're an elite athlete, you don't get paid, especially you know, in athletics, they don't get paid much at all apart from their their uh, marketing deals. Yeah. So you can understand that he needs to make some decent money from wearing our shoes. Mm. But if wearing our shoes makes him quicker and he's shown that in his training, mm. which he had, mm. and then he still refuses to wear them because he'll get paid to wear Adidas or <laughs> Nike or something. It's, isn't that amazing? You know, yeah. um, it's kind of sad in a way, but, but that's yeah. the world that we live in. It's the kind of, uh, you know, capitalist uh, or, or sure. you know, what's the right term? Not capitalist. Um, well, I suppose it is capitalist. So I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, there's material, the material world, materials. Yeah. You see a lot of surfers because um, we grew up, you know, there's a lot of surf here, a lot of yeah, pro yeah. surfers. And um, I see a lot of surfers repping Red Bull and Monster and yeah. Rockstar and things like that. And I often think to myself, like, this is the message that they're portraying to all mm. these young kids that look up to them. And it's kind of, si yeah. yeah, it's similar to when you're talking about um, the shoe. It's like if you if he was following his heart, he might, he mm. might have taken the deal and yeah. accepted less money, but then won because he was following. Well, his this heart. is the thing. <laughs> exactly. This is the thing, you know, so you think he could have, could have had, you know, 10 or 20,000 pounds in his pocket <laughs> and potentially won, or, you know, he just stuck with his original deal and came forth. So, you know, it's like, I, I suppose the thing for him is that he just doesn't know if, you know, in advance, if he kind of thinks he's going to win anywhere, yeah. anyway, <laughs> then, then, you know, maybe that's, that's what drove the decision. But um, Such a hard one, eh? Like, it is fascinating. What would, yeah. what would you do? What would you do? You know, someone comes up to you and um, as, say you're a surfer and they say, I'm going to give you 20 mil. you got to drink Red Bull and ride for Red Bull. Yeah. yeah what do you do? Absolutely. Because <laughs> like, I know, I know. I know. I've spoke about this, Callan, and I'm like, yeah, God, man. it's like 
the worst message, like I'd like to think I'd say no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fuck yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, it'd be it's hard. a nice Ferrari, no. but, but maybe, maybe, yeah, mate, it's a green Ferrari. <laughs> maybe, um, old mate got the negative context because he didn't have his special running shoes, and that's why he lost. Like, you know, yeah, who knows? Yeah, um, yeah, it could be. What could I be, what yeah. I do want to go into is is the 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 models of conscious development, and at least just a, mm. a rundown of because even some of these, I'm I'm sort of um like. The archaic, the magical, animistic, power gods, mythical, scientific, rational, materialism, postmodern, ecological, pluralistic, integrative, and then holistic. And just, and <laughs> I even got the percentages here. Like, you know, we got 0.1%, 10%, 20%. And most of us yeah, yeah, yeah. now are in um, mythical, actually. I'm looking at this mythical 40%. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, that's because a lot of the world's populations still believe in. Um, essentially mythical style religion so they, they they believe that jesus broke the bread and shared it you know amongst five thousand people and they believe that uh you know wh- whatever you know the, the sort of great world religions uh, are generally written down as myths um and and some people believe that that happened you know um whereas other people see them more as teaching stories um or allegories so they're kind of you know they're they're um pointing to something beyond themselves you know, mm. so it's like it could be that, you know, if you with the right intention, you can share your love amongst lots of people. Right. You know, that could be the kind of allegory of, of the um, of the, the breaking the bread for the 5000 people or whatever. Yeah. Or, you know, turning water into wine could be that, you know, a, a kind of another way of saying when life serves you lemons, make lemonade. You know, it could be that you kind of say, well, that's that's the teaching behind it. But some people believe it literally and that's 40% of the world's population are really in that sort of level of consciousness where those stories to them actually happens, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, but, but that's, that's sort of a few steps up the model. Mm. So okay. just re- read me out the, the, the base level. What's the base yeah. level? Archaic and then magical animistic and then power gods. Yeah. So archaic, so archaic. archaic um, so, you know, there's lots of different models like this. Okay. So, um, you know, it's not that that one, that's, that's one that, um, Ken Wilber put together and he put it together like 20 years ago or so. So, you know, it's, there's various updated versions of it, but what he was trying to do is to amalgamate a series of different models from from various different people, from Gene Gebser to, um, uh, Claire Graves, Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that have put together models looking at, the evolution of consciousness throughout different cultures. Um, and the, the, the point in the models is that we don't necessarily evolve beyond that level. It's that, we, it's that we develop a new way of looking at things that incorporates that old way. So we can still get lost in myth and story and, and, and so on. And there's certain things that we do believe just like that mythical, magical level. But so... So yeah, archaic is the first, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So archaic, uh, archaic is essentially where you know you're uh, looking at sort of um, things in nature uh, with kind of awe and wonder. You don't really know what they're about, okay? And then does it go to magical? It mythical goes, yeah, it goes so, to magical animistic, like that as one magical animistic. So yeah. yeah, so then you start to sort of seek explanations or for what's going on in a kind of um, magical way so oh maybe there's a maybe there's a plant spirit maybe there's a you know fairies over here or you know maybe it's the gods that bring the rain or something else that you know made that thunder clap so that's kind of 
magical. It's imag- It's using the imagination, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, and power gods, you know. Mix. Yeah. So, th- so, th- so then, power gods is starting to move into the idea that there's these extrinsic forces that are all powerful, and they're normally they're often sky gods, but they don't have to be. They could be the volcano god, or they could be the sea god, or whatever. Um, but, but the thing there is that whereas at the animistic stage, often these cultures feel integrated with nature as part of the magic of life. When you start to reach the power god phase, you start to feel separate. So it's kind of where the ego starts to emerge. So a lot of a lot of plant medicines take you more back to that animistic stage. So you feel completely integrated with nature and see yourself as one with nature. But and that's because they dissolve the ego, right? But if you go a step beyond that towards power gods, well, this is now people developing ideas around that thunderclap or around the the you know sort of barren spell that they've had with with the sun beating down and they feel like they're being punished by something external to them something they can't control so they see as the 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 locus of power being outside them and this is what we see in medicine you know and this is what we're seeing at the moment sort of globally on a global scale is the idea that there's this kind of evil virus that's outside of you that's got all this power it could take your life and then you know the only way to get past that is to put your faith in the medical industry that will, you know, magic you better with their special potions. <laughs> so it's kind of this idea that you have no power as an individual. You have to either bow down to the power of the virus or bow down to the power of the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And of course, you know, when you know a bit more about life uh, or studied this field, then you know that's not close to the truth, right? And people like Zach Bush explain that there's 31 billion billion viruses that we're exposed to in the environment on a daily basis. And COVID-19 is just another one of those, or, or SARS-CoV-2, I should say, is the actual virus. COVID-19 is the disease. But SARS-CoV-2 is just another one of those. And, and plenty of those viruses could kill you, you know? But you, you've got this called an immune system, which, of course, in this day and age, seems to be like a conspiracy theory that you have an immune system. But so if you look after your immune system, you know, and you look after your health, then no problem. And, and this is kind of reflected in, figures that show that, you know, on average, within household transmission is between 16 and 19%, right? So that shows you how dangerous the virus is as an entity on its own. So you've got a family, right? Let's say a family of five people. One of them gets COVID-19. And if you were to watch the news, you think, well, that's it, the family are all going to get it. Well, no, the the transmission is 16 to 19%. So statistically speaking, not even one other member of the family is going to get it. When you've got a family of six, maybe two of them will get it. Yeah, right. (laughs) A family of four or five, then one of them will get it. That'll be it. Right. And so, and so yet that family, they, they are living in the same house. They'll probably have similar belief systems. They're probably eating very similar foods. They've probably got similar levels of hydration and activity and so on. So, so let's say you've got someone who's somewhat unhealthy, and I'm somewhat stressed out and they get exposed to COVID-19. They come down with, with, or I should say SARS-CoV-2. They come down with COVID-19. The rest of the family in a similar position, but none of them get it. So, so the point there is that, you know, it's not like there's one unhealthy person living with four healthy people, but, you know, you've got a family that probably living pretty similarly, 
but only one of them gets it. Why is that? Well, you know, it might be age, it might be blood sugar handling on that day, it might be they had a bad night's sleep, they might be dehydrated, you know, might have a penchant for drinking too much beer or whatever it might be. It might be the inactive one in the family, didn't get enough sunlight, all of those things. That will, all of those, you know, this is this kind of notion of summation of stresses, right? So the more stresses that summate on any given individual, the more it impacts on their immune function. But even, even within a, a household, like I say, the transmission rate is extremely low. And so therefore, um, you know, what you know is that the virus isn't that potent, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, um, you know, it's, that's, that, that's, that's gold. And that's gold for everyone to listen. That's one of the, again, the biggest thing I took away from our, our, your, your seminar that I went to was, was really like we already, we learn it in the check model, but to get someone to really drive it into my head about the concept mm. of physiological allostatic load and how that's yeah that's everything yeah. that's that's everything and now that's what I, the way i look mm. at anyone's eyes is what's their highest stressor and how can i chip away yeah. at their highest stresses and lower their physiological load and I, I sort of word it like listen if you like get on the piss tonight have some vegetable oil for breakfast you know stress from your missus or partner if you got tattooed today it would hurt more than not mm. than if you didn't do all that basically you know what i mean yeah, yeah. and then your pain Absolutely. gets sensitized and then pain becomes worse so no matter what and I, and I see it even in my, like, on Instagram and, you know, these girls asking for this and all these symptoms, all these symptoms always chasing, almost looking for the mechanism all the time instead of mm. just, like, there's, there's, and this is where we're going now into the scientific and, and integrative sort of thing where, like, I have girls where they get tested for gluten intolerance and they come up okay, but then they eat gluten and their guts swell up, but then they say, mm. nah, I got tested, it's all good. You know what I mean? But their guts <laughs> yeah, are yeah, yeah. That's it. So it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. what's going on? And that's that's sort of, I mean, the, the next one was was mythical. So the difference between mythical and power gods, is there, what's the difference between those two? Well, see, this is the thing. There's there's obviously overlap between all of them to yeah. a degree. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, mythical obviously doesn't necessarily relate to religions. It can be, you know, standard sort of societal myths. You know, we talk about, George and the dragon, we're talking about your dragon's blood at the beginning. Yeah. That's, a, that's a myth, you know. Um, but people would have believed those myths and they, they're used as teaching stories uh, within tribes without necessarily having a structured religion. So the power gods typically are part of a structured belief system, um, yeah, structured okay. religion, yeah. um, but, uh, but they, don't, they don't have to be. Um, and, you know, one thing I was going to say is that you mentioned some of the percentages that are on that chart in terms of the number of, or the percentage of the population that are at that level of consciousness and what you'll see is that if you add up all those percentages they end up being more than 100 percent, right and that's because some people are in more than one level at once okay you know uh -huh. and so that you might be completely in the power god's um uh level of consciousness when it comes to medicine because you believe in a power outside of you you know you, you wouldn't ever think to look at google to do your own research because mm. you know what would i know compared to a doctor so you're completely in that power god phase of consciousness whereas in other elements you know let's say you've got someone who's a you know uh, an engineer or something well when it comes to engineering they might be right in that scientific materialist level which is higher up in the consciousness yeah. development because they believe in the science they believe in materials they understand they've done all their training in you know how to apply the science of engineering to building bridges or whatever it might be but when it comes to medicine, they drop down a level to power gods and it's suddenly like, oh, the, you know, I don't know anything about medicine. So I'm going to defer to the power gods that are, you know, hi higher up in society, higher up in the sky than me. 
you know and it's like well that's fine on one level you know that, that's absolutely right in our society you know we have such uh differential levels of specialization right so i wouldn't know how to build a build a build a home let's say you know i'd kind of give it a good crack but <laughs> but uh, you know I, I could make some serious mistakes that could make that thing fall down pretty quickly right because i've never trained in it i've trained in medicine and in osteopathy and in conditioning and in health and you know but so so then you know i feel quite competent in my area but you put me into a different area suddenly you know i'm going to struggle and and that's what you see with the covid-19 is people go well that's not my area of expertise i'll leave that to the experts but the problem is is they don't realize how the system is built and the system is built yeah. of course on a profits based materialistic um paradigm and you can argue of course that things only become profitable if they work or if there's a market for them and so the, of course pharmaceuticals work to a degree and of course there's a market for them but but the market for them is based on a pre-existing paradigm when you think where where the uh sort of general societal level of consciousness was when pharmaceuticals emerged in the late 1800s and early 1900s practically everyone at that point in time believed in a power god okay so they believed that something outside of them was what had power over them and what could fix them so then someone comes along with a pharmaceutical and some of these pharmaceuticals are fantastic you know as as we know the sort of advent of penicillin saved you know hundreds of thousands of people on the battlefield and all this kind of stuff so so look there's definitely power within some of these pharmaceutical approaches it's just the paradigm became so strong and and developed so much financial backing that what it did was it influenced the entire medical um industry if you like or medical training medical education over the last century and so what you've had is you've had a, a 100 years worth of medical training that has been focused towards increasingly towards pharmaceuticals away from things like nutrition and health and lifestyle principles um and uh and so you know we end up where we are today where people think that a virus is going to kill them everyone thinks it in yeah. spite of the reality of it you know um so uh so yeah so that's kind of uh, a bit that's of a brutal. bit think... of an insight into the power power gods and the <laughs> scientific materialists love it do you think there's just like always i always have this picture in my head of like these big bad people in this big white house or whatever just like concocting like building a concoction <laughs> of these things like what do you think do you think it's like do you think it's developed do you think like what's your what's your take on covid-19 do you think it's like a developed thing do you think it's just like a bunch of hype i know paul's talked about it quite a lot and yeah 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 um i'd be very surprised if it's a naturally occurring virus um you know there's there's been so many exposés of this uh lots of things that just don't add up there's a researcher there in australia i forget the guy's name um i think he's at melbourne uh university who is a a, a vaccine vaccinologist like he's a, he's a, he develops vaccines and he looked at the SARS-CoV-2 and found that it matches almost 100% to the ACE2 receptor so the ACE2 receptor is what SARS-CoV-2 binds to right and creates the infection okay so we've got so we've got um uh ACE2 receptors on on our cells um as as do all mammals interesting enough the higher your physiological load if you like or the, or the more inflamed you are the more ACE2 receptors you have Yeah. Right. So 
so so you know again the healthier you are the the the, the more uh anti-inflammatory your lifestyle balanced your lifestyle is the problem is, is as we know through the check system we, we talk about people being too yang and that's essentially they're too on fire they've got too much going on the whole time they're too inflammatory well that increases your ace2 receptors that means that any SARS-CoV-2 hanging around in the air that combines straight away to those receptors right so um so this this guy at Melbourne basically found out that the SARS-CoV-2 um, spike protein has something like a 99.8% um, match to human receptors. Um, to bats, it's about 91%. To cats, it's about 89%. And they, they tested all kinds of things, king cobras. They tested, um, you know, uh, what was it, pangolins. You know, all the things that might it might have evolved from. And it matched humans better than anything else, which suggests that it was either something that evolved in humans, certainly didn't come from bats, because if it came from bats, it would have been 100% on the bats and say 95% for humans or 80% or whatever. But actually humans have the best match to it, which suggests it's been engineered or has evolved perhaps for to, to, to be optimally binding to human receptors. Okay, so that's that's one little bit of evidence. Yeah. But then you've got other other bits like, you know, in the DNA sequence, you've got all these letters. I don't know if you remember from biology, but there's AGCT, the letters that DNA is kind of made up from, and they represent the amino acids, okay, um, or just say nucleic acids. Now, these nucleic acids, if there's a um, if there's some kind of uh, mutation that occurs, then you might get one nucleic acid mutates and turns into something else, or, or disappears from the the, the code, etc. But on SARS-CoV-2, they know there's 12 in a row that have been removed and a different 12 have appeared there. And that doesn't happen through evolution. That, you know, and this is published in Nature, one of the most prestigious journals in the world. Wow. And yet the conclusion of the paper is that it's therefore, is that it's probably uh, evolved naturally. And you're looking at this going, well, that, <laughs> what they say in the paper and what they conclude are two completely different things. And there's plenty of virologists that talk about that. Um, obviously, Dolores Cahill is one of them uh, who you probably are aware of if you've uh, been sort of searching around both sides of the story. Um, very highly credentialed virologist and, and uh, highly respected on multiple levels. But she, she basically says exactly that. You can't get 12 new nucleic acids appearing unless it's been inserted right so you know then and there's various other things as well that point to me towards it uh being uh engineered in some way um you know the fact that it appeared eight kilometers down the road from a biosafety level four lab mm. well there's only two of those in china right and china's i forget how many square kilometers it is it's mm, i mean it's a massive country and this just happened to appear eight kilometers away from a, a level four biosafety lab where they're working on coronaviruses. I mean, <laughs> like how much of a stretch is that? And then, and then, you know, even Fauci's was, you know, back in October, I got sent something as an osteopath because Fauci had addressed the American Osteopathic Association and was talking about, you know, how osteopaths should be working with, uh, with patients with COVID-19. And even then he was still saying that, um, you know, of course, this emerged in a seafood market in Wuhan. And, and yet that had been debunked a couple of months beforehand, because, I mean, first of all, seafood market, I mean, when, when, 
was bat considered a seafood, <laughs> right? They, they, they didn't sell bats at the seafood market, right? So there, there's an issue straight away. Um, but, but also it was proven that they weren't <laughs> selling bats at the market. So the, the story just did not add up, yeah. you know, on any level. So, you know, the thing is when you, you know, if you, if you just dive into one story, then you can convince yourself of anything. But if you try and just grab the various bits of information and, and, and stay above it all and, and, and essentially look at the bigger picture, then you know that there's, there's something fishy going on. There's something that yeah. there's too many things that don't add up, too many stories that are being repeated by different new, news agencies verbatim all around the world, like there's a global script. And yeah. that doesn't, you know, anyone who's mm. discerning can look at that and go, there's something not right with that. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I agree. Sure. <laughs> that's cool. That's, that's cool. Um, I was sort of talking about um, integrative is one of the next ones. We've got the scientific, rational materialism, postmodern, yeah, yeah, yeah. ecological, yeah. pluralistic. So postmodern, is that sort of where we, we're at scientific, rationalism, materialism right now? Would you say would say that's yeah. the, where? That's the, where medicine's at. Medicine's you know, at. that's where, where a lot of science is at, um, obviously, because it's scientific material. So, mm. but, it, but some science isn't there. Some science is beyond that. It's, it's looking more holistically and um you know of course a lot of people talk about quantum science quantum mechanics that kind of thing and that's true that that seems to go beyond mechanistic thinking it, it suddenly there's this kind of what einstein called spooky action at a distance so it's quite difficult well it's, in fact it's impossible to explain with newtonian physics what happens in the quantum world um so it does relate much more to our notion of consciousness as being primary as opposed to being emergent so in other words consciousness is what has allowed everything to unfold through evolution as opposed to it emerging as a result of evolution right so yeah. so it's like um so so that it, that concept ties more closely to the world's religions which suggests that there's some kind of intelligent being or intelligence behind everything that has allowed everything to emerge or created everything you know, as opposed to the scientific materialist view, which is that things have gradually got more and more complex. And as they've got more and more com complex, intelligence has increased. And then suddenly it, consciousness emerges as a result of intelligence. And that, that doesn't add up in, in quantum science. Um, but also it doesn't add up in things like chaos theory and um, complexity theory. There's, there's a bunch of different elements of science Game theory is another one which just really questions that scientific materialist um, level of consciousness. I remember you you told us about a, a girl that had I think she was dropping two meters of worms a day. Is that is that? Did I hear that? Oh right? yeah, 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 yeah. Was it what was yeah. it your client? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's so yeah. gnarly. Because I tell people about this, right? Because you know, we, we put a lot of people in the parasite cleanse, and and <laughs> yeah. and um. So this is how I can sort of word it, right? So we, we did a post about it and we've had like a girl messaged me the other day saying she dropped worms after four days, you know what I mean? Which is pretty mm. quick, right? But um, yeah. multiple people have dropped worms, tapeworms. Jake's mate mm. literally saw one like in his friend's sh shit. He sent, not, me, he sent me a photo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, it's nice. great. It's great. But <laughs> one girl had all these people commenting like, yeah, I, I did this, this. And then one girl said us, she just finished... Uh, uh, nutrition i think at uni and she asked is there any um science to <laughs> to back like to you know so 
to back your claim sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just literally yeah. people saying, I'm seeing them fall out of my ass. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and they're dying. Yeah, so we know, crazy, it's, we know yeah. it's working, right? Yeah, yeah. But since there wasn't, it wasn't written on paper by, by um, someone up above, Professor. her power god, yeah, whatever, yeah. then, it, then yeah. it didn't um, exist. And how yeah. your girl went to, what, the parasitologist? Is that what you call them? And, um, yeah, well, it was actually the, the Centre for Tropical Diseases in London, which is supposedly, you know, like a kind of centre of excellence here in the UK. Um, and she, she took the worms in the jar that she had passed um, and, uh, yeah, handed them into them and said, look, you know, don't know what these are, so I'm not really sure. I'm doing a parasite cleanse, but I, I figured if I can work out what they are, I can be more effective because I seem to be passing about two meters worth of these worms. The, the worms themselves were kind of like a garden worm. They're about, about six inches, I suppose, mm-hmm. four, four to six inches, maybe. I don't know. The, but they ultimately, uh, yeah, she was passing maybe 20 or, or, you know, 30 of those per day. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, she took these worms in and basically said, could you find out what these are? And they said, yeah, no problem. And she got the results back a week or two later. And uh, they said, well, you, you don't have any worms. And she said, well, what do you mean I don't have worms? And they said, well, our tests measure eggs and we couldn't find any eggs in the samples. So therefore you don't have an infection. She's like, but I handed you the worms that I'm passing. And they're like, well, you know, as far as we're concerned, you don't have anything going on, you know, because we couldn't find any eggs. And you're yeah. like... That's just ridiculous. I mean, that's that, that, that's that's reductionism gone mad, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's insanity. Did, did you know what worm she had in the end? Um, do you know what? Uh, I can't think. I can't think off the top of my head what it was. If it comes to me, I, I will shout yeah. it out. But um, <laughs> you've had a lot of clients. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Had like a lot of people with tapeworms. Um, yeah, it wasn't tapeworm. It was. Um, yeah, and no, I, I can't remember the name of it because it was quite a complex Latin name, but it was, this was about 2003, 2004, so it's yeah. a little while back now. Yeah. So, but I, yeah, it might, it might come to me as we we're talking, but. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you put yeah, a lot of, like, do you put a lot of people on, on a parasite cleanse? Do you see that a lot of people benefit from doing one? Because we just about like, man, I've had a guy, he had a disc bulge, right? And he did the cleanse. Mm. He didn't shit out any worms, but he found out that garlic was inflaming his gut when he did the cleanse, right? And he's allowed mm. to do it, but like he goes, oh, garlic was hurting my gut. So then he stopped eating garlic for three days and his disc pain went down significantly. You know what I mean? So yeah. just, just having yeah, people yeah. just, it, it, the, the worm cleanse is, is really the motivation because they think, oh, fuck, I might have something crawling inside of me. But really just them yeah, fucking yeah. that shit for four weeks gets them healing pretty well. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's what that's yeah, my biggest yeah, yeah. motivation for my own clients. Do you try to put a, a fair few people on it? It's more so lowering the physiological load with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, when, when you assess people the way we do in the check system, obviously most people have gut issues mm. straight away. So yeah. you know you've got to work with their gut. Um, and, you know, this relates to the dimensional mastery model that, that I talked about, which mm. is the idea that the first level of mastery that we have to attain as a, as a living creature is mastery of the radial field or, or the um, – expansion contraction type dimension if you like so so you know we call it the primal dimension because essentially it's the first movement pattern that any organism would exhibit so it's you know essentially your breathing type motions so the the body wall expands and then it contracts down okay and that's that's the peristaltic motion as well so it's, it's the the guts go through this radial contraction okay uh like i say breathing does the blood vessels do the heart does the transverse abdominus does so essentially you know the deep layers and levels of human function or animal function are all radial contraction okay 
And so we need to master that dimension first. And you can't master radial contraction if you've got gut inflammation or if you've got a parasite problem or fungal overgrowth or whatever, because the inflammation there is going to stop you from being able to get effective parastasis. So you either get you know, diarrhea or constipation or you flux between the two. So there's an issue with your radial field straight away. It's, you know, it's peristalsis mm. radial field, if you like. Um, it's going to impact on your breathing. So it's going to, again, that's, that's radial field because it's expansion contraction. And it's going to impact on your transverse abdominus function. So, you know, if you, if you can't activate those stabilizers of the spine, you certainly shouldn't be doing the thing that's loading the spine in any sort of significant <laughs> way. So, so we really need to get the gut healthy first and all of those radial field elements, including breathing, before we start going up and loading in additional dimensions. So first, second, third dimension is frontal plane, sagittal plane, transverse plane. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do really sort of want to get into that because I that shit's amazing. Um, mm, when mm, so when you were talking about the radial contraction, how all of that comes off the light dark cycle in early life forms, yeah, right? So yeah. flowers and you know cold contracts, heat opens. Yeah, yeah. Jellyfish, worms. Is do you find <laughs> yeah, yeah. somehow the light dark cycle cycle and the circadian rhythm affect that in our own deep intrinsic? body if you know what i mean like with setting us yeah. circadian rhythm is there like a, yeah. A, yeah, top, yeah. a tight link with that well so what we've got here because I, I guess you know because you sat with me for a couple of days going yeah. through it um that all made sense to you and it made sense to me but i, I guess from from a listener's yeah. perspective we, we've got two models that we're talking about so we've got this dimensional mastery model which is what i was just alluding to there where you start out with the primal dimension which is expansion and contraction and that ties in with most of your visceral function and it ties in with your breathing. It ties in with your your uh, transverse abdominus function as well. So your stability mechanisms of the core. Then you move up into first, second, and third dimensions of space, which is frontal, sagittal, transverse. And and at each level of movement, it becomes more and more neurologically complex. Um, and so you you see it across evolution that the earliest life forms just expanded and contracted. Then you get the evolution of fish, and you get side flexion or, or frontal plane movement evolving and you need a spine for that because if you contract it all down one side of the body um, without a spine, which is what fish do, they contract all down the left side, let's say, the spine stops them telescoping in on themselves. So you only get these additional sort of planes of motion emerging beyond that primal uh, expansion contraction when you've got a spine. Okay, so, so these are the, the, the vertebrates essentially. So now you can master the frontal plane movement and you see that in the fish, the fish emerge onto land. Oh. Damn it. You cut out. I'm not sure if you can hear us. <laughs> and, and the lizard. Oh, there you go. You're back. Yeah, I got, I got you. I got you. So where, where did we get to? Um, you fish evolve onto land and they stopped at land. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. So. So yeah, so so then you got the lizards on land, mm -hmm. yeah, and so they 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 maintain that frontal plane or side to side movement, and then uh, because of the forces of gravity pushing down against organisms that are on land, well now some of them start to evolve the ability to lift up against gravity, so they develop extension and flexion, so sagittal flexion and extension, which essentially is mastered the best in the mammals, the mammalian. Uh, uh genre or genre um and then transverse plane motion which is very complex because you've got to activate opposite sides of the brain 
in an asymmetrical way. Um, so neurologically, it's the most complex. That only really evolves in higher primates. So even the lower primates jump through the trees in a kind of sagittal plane motion and the higher primates swing through the trees. And then we as, as humans or as hominids develop bipedal gait using that transverse plane motion. So those are the, your sort of dimensions of space. And my, the, you know, my theory, because you know, there's other people that have talked about things in this kind of way. You know, Phil Beach is one of them, Grakovetsky is one of them and so on. Um, which is a side note, look, you, you mentioned about Donald Carr saying, you know, hang out with people that inspire you or that, that you want to learn from or whatever. And, and that's what I did. You know, I hung out with Paul and I hung out with Phil Beach and I hung out with Serge Grakovetsky and these kinds of people, Leon Chato, you know, these are people that inspired me. And so you try and spend time with them, try and get close to them, understand more about you know, how, they, how they function, what they read, you know, how they've interpreted different pieces of research and so on. But so... Those guys, Phil and, and Serge especially, talked in similar ways to the way I'm talking now. But then the, the, the question is, well, if we've mastered this transverse plane, the third dimension of space, so where does evolution take us next? And so if you're thinking of it from a dimensions perspective, well, the fourth dimension is the dimension of time. And, um, and you know, time is really a mental construct. And so you can say that time and mind are very much interwoven, Okay. And sure enough, if you speak to or if you read the work of Eckhart Tolle or someone like that, then you see that he essentially says exactly that, that time and mind are one and the same thing or time and ego are one and the same thing. And, and we really need to essentially come into the now to recognize our, uh, the impact that our mind can have on us positively or negatively. You know, so, so once we come into the now, well, then now we transcend the notion of time and we end up in the fifth dimension, which is outside of space and time. We're just in the ever-present now, which is where quantum physics does all its work, it seems, and it's where spirituality tends to reside. Okay, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, dimensional mastery model. Um, and of course, you know, we spent... A couple of days going yeah. through this so you know you can you can you can <laughs> sort of get, dive into the different facets of it in quite some detail but but the other model that you just alluded to there callum is is the um uh the what i call the primal dialectics and and this is the idea that there's there's four primary dialectics or you could call them polarities or kind of conversations that are going on in living physiology at all times and and so, you know, with the assumption that we're living on a planet Earth, so, you know, and, and that that Earth is primarily, you know, two, two thirds water. So we kind of kind of got the Earth and the water as part of our substrate. Well, then what is it that it takes to make life on Earth? And what it takes is it takes light and dark cycles. And so that's the first dialectic. It takes inspiration and expiration cycles, which is the second dialectic. It takes eating and fasting cycles, and then it takes movement and rest or exercise, or you could say work and rest is probably the best way, uh, cycles, okay? And so, you know, when you look at plant life, then plant life eats the light, rests in the dark. We tend to be active during the light and rest in the dark, some animals the other way around, but basically every creature on the planet is tuned into the 24-hour cycle. Every organism, not every creature, every organism is tuned into the 24-hour rhythm, the circadian rhythm of the planet. And so that's the most fundamental 
influence on physiology, whether it be plant or animal. And it's no surprise that in animals, the hormonal system is the most fundamental of the control systems. It's the most ancient of the control systems. It, it evolved long before nervous systems evolved, for example. Um, and the most fundamental of our hormones is cortisol. And cortisol ties in exactly with the light-dark cycle. And the light-dark cycle stimulates cortisol release. And of course, it's the light-dark cycle that we've messed with perhaps the most out of anything in our, uh, in our modern lives, you know, in terms of electric lights and computers and TV screens and phone screens and all the rest of it, alarm clocks, um, et cetera. So if we can get that light-dark cycle right, then physiologically, that's the key foundation for everything else to, to sort of take off from. But what you were saying in terms of the, you know, linking in the, the dialectics with the primal, sorry, the primal dialectics with the dimensional mastery is that the very earliest movement would have been this expansion and contraction. And what is it that drives expansion? Well, it's heat. It's heat from the day's sun that expands things out radially. And then when it gets cold, it contracts in radially as well. So the very earliest movement of materials would have been expansion with the heat of the sun and the light of the sun and contraction with the cold of the lack of sun you know, of the night, essentially. And then across time, what will have happened is that, uh, you know, for example, in, in animal cells, myofibrils develop in the cell of, uh, in the wall of the cell initially. So they're contractile elements. And bit by bit, that cell starts to develop the capacity to be able to constrict and to expand. And so then it starts to develop muscular function. And ultimately, you develop muscular systems and muscular skeletal systems and you know we end up with what we got today right so yeah. that's where it starts that's um i, I really want to like <laughs> drop into like back to time how i remember you mentioned possibly one of the first scientific thoughts was when we evolved to a sense of time was if there was tracks on the ground we could see those tracks and then think yeah. that happened in the past. If I follow those tracks, there might be my food in the future, <laughs> which is amazing. Yeah, I'm still there. And, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then what I, I I wrote down, I looked at my notes, man, and this one stood out to me the other day. I was like, whoa, this shit, look at this fucking sentence. And it was the paradox of time <laughs> and how, right, right. how we have spirituality because we have time and we have time. Like we have spirituality because we know we're going to die. Like if we have time and then we know mm. there's death up ahead. So we know that we got to have a, you know, come up with some answers for it. So that is mm. our link to spirituality is time. But the paradox is when we lose time, we get linked to spirituality, which is the whole Eckhart Tolle. When we, when we come back to the present, yeah, yeah, forget yeah. about the past and the future. Now we're back yeah. into spirituality. So it's this like inverse relationship that totally. you need them both, but you've got to be aware of them both, but really come back to the present. And that's, um, that was, that was yeah. huge, you know, and that's something you can meditate on for fucking. Yeah. Did you ever, you can did you, you ever can. look into like uh, Ram Das? You know who Ram Das is, and yeah, I do know. I do know of him. I can't yeah. say that I've read a lot of his work or, or, yeah. or listened to a lot of his work, but uh, but I know Paul really rates him. Um, yeah. What were you going to say? Was that something that yeah, well, reminds you of some of his? Yeah, philosophy? it definitely did. And I was I was going to see where like where who have you studied that's like really into the whole the dying dying kind of thing. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've read quite a lot of books on dying. Uh, you know, I've read a bit of the uh, Tibetan book of living and dying. Yeah. I've read, uh, oh, 
Yeah, there's a book called Living Your Dying by uh, Stanley Kellerman, um, which which is quite cool. And it's about the idea that we're dying the whole time, you know, that we need to not hold it away from us as something that's separate, but it's part of us. We need to die. You know, it's like apoptosis. You know, if you don't die, you end up with cancer, right? And then you die. <laughs> so you need to keep dying. Yes. Otherwise, you get you get cancer. You know, like your cells need to yeah. die. It's yeah. just constantly turning over, you know, constantly yeah. evolving and, and developing. But so, um, so yeah, it's... Um, Death, death but yeah, I've, I've studied a few books on dying and, and you know, I've experienced a bit of breathing like, like we all do uh, ultimately, you know, um, so I think I've given it a fair bit of thought, um, you know, but my mum died when I was 13, my dad died when I was 31. So, you know, I've had people very close to me that have died. And, and so, um, you know, I think when that happens, it makes you contemplate death and, 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 you know, look out for information and experiences around that to see how that resonates with what you've experienced, you know? Yeah, totally. I get, I get a block when I think about death. I always thought about it a lot as a kid and I, I had mm. this block, like I'd go back and I go, what was before time? What was before everything? And yeah, I'd yeah. have this blank, I'd, I'd get blank. And one day I had this massive calm come over me and I was like, my ego wants to find this out. It wants to figure this out, but mm. we're not meant to figure this out. And I just had this yeah, yeah. crazy, like goosebumpy, like calmness come over me. And I was like, mm. the, the, it's just the mind. Death isn't real. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. such a cool thing. Yeah. Um, oh, it is. And, you, you know, you can get that kind of experience with plant medicines and so on where, yeah. you know, you're in that environment where you realize that, that you know, what, what the Hindus call uh, Leela or, or the dance of life, the great play, you know, it's like everything's just, you know, life just is. It's just kind of yeah. going around <laughs> totally. and happening and, and, you know, it's changing. It's transforming the whole time. And death is part of that. And death is a beautiful part of life. Yeah, and, and Eckhart Tolle has a nice phrase where he says, um, what did he say? He, he, he says, um, life is not the opposite of death. And he repeats it. Life yeah. is not the opposite of death. Wow. Birth is the opposite of death. Life just is. Yeah, that's um. Yeah. It's like Fuck, that's cool. Yeah, that's, that's something. That's it. Right? There's these cycles happening the whole time. You know, birth and death, and birth and death, and birth and death. You know, whether you're talking about stars or ecosystems mm. or you know countries, nations, people. You know, whatever. And ideas um, too. Yeah, that's part of the beauty. You know. Yeah, we see it as bad, bad and good. And maybe we should mm. just see it as one thing. <laughs> yeah, because you yeah, just think yeah. like like ideas like. Think about like we'd all if there wasn't death, you'd still have we'd all have slaves and shit. You know what I mean? Like that those <laughs> yeah, old, yeah, old ideas true. need to change because it's like yeah. that's it. Yeah. They die with each with each the death of each scientist, don't they? So that's how science evolves is with yeah. the death oh, of the man. sort of uh, old god. Yeah. And um so I mean, whenever the borders open again, we'd love to if you ever come to Australia, we'd love to mm. uh have you in, in in you know, we got a we got a pretty big space now. We have a lot of people that uh come to, you know, whatever yeah, we yeah. That'd whatever, be awesome. Whatever, really, you know, yeah, some sort of workshop, yeah. and um, so and good. people, yeah, would vibe, and, and it's on the Sunshine Coast. So you're not stuck in the city like you were last time. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, that's great. I'll be up for that. Yeah, be up cool. for that. With the name, like yeah, the you know, like 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 I said. So you know, part of what what these things are that we've been discussing are models, right? They're models, and a model is not um, uh, an exact reflection of the truth. What it is, it's a simplification of the truth that allows you to find that simplicity within the complexity of, you know, whatever situation you've got in front of you. And so, you know, the analogy there is that a map is, 
is a model of the town that you're in or the country that you're in. It's not the actual territory. Because if, if it was, the map would have to be as big as the country that you're in, right? Mm. So you have to model it down. Or, or you know, it, they say like, if a model was true to form, it would be so detailed that it would defy its purpose. The whole purpose is to simplify it and make it uh, you know, more understandable and essentially to be able to navigate a situation. That's what a map is. And the model's the same. So it's, it's you know, these models are designed to be, uh, designed to sort of simplify the, the, the challenge that you or your client has and to say, okay, well, what do we need to focus on here? You know, there's four dialectics. There's, there's sort of, you know, five dimensions of mastery plus the primal, so six in total. It's like the, you know, the, the four doctors concept. Mm -hmm. It's very, very similar. There's a lot of kind of overlap between the four doctors and the primal dialectics. They're all models that help you to say, okay, how do we simplify this right down so, it, so we can navigate this territory? And um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the point of it. But to try and create something that's in our field, that's holistic and encompassing and allows people to contextualize, like what's the priority here? You know, someone wants to get good at running do they work on their gut first or do they work on their running program first? And it's like, well, if you look at the model, it will tell you what you need to do first, right? You need to get the foundations, right? Yeah. So we start with the primal dimension before <laughs> we get up to the third dimension. The radial contraction yeah. of the gut. Yeah, that's, that's good, man. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's good. Um, yeah, so, that's man, really we'll, cool. we'd love to do sort of one of these again one time. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will vibe to this. Um, yeah. definitely with yeah. our listeners because yeah it's like, i was a little bit nervous to be honest at the start <laughs> <laughs> i've heard a lot of i've heard a lot of things about yeah, and, yeah. um yeah i really look, really look <laughs> up to quite you a scary bloke yeah <laughs> fuck <laughs> and like and for for the because i got a, we got a lot of people listening that are getting the check and we actually it just reminded me we got to order that so you got a, a product called the neutralizer that that keeps oh, yeah keeps your spine it's for all the guys listening that are getting the check it's like a queuing point for the spine instead of a stick mm. instead of chucking a stick on her back it's something that just cues your lumbar curve so through exercise you can you know where your spine's at basically and your your uh your uh website matthewwalden.com yeah, yeah it's actually mattwalden.com so matt with two t's walden with two l's but yeah mattwalden.com and yeah. d yeah cool and um yeah and there's a lot of a lot of uh good good info on there about the visceral somatic reflexes and a lot of stuff in there but Man, uh, and yeah. you actually got a new. I cannot wait for this one. I try to, um, <laughs> I try to get the Czech Institute because I got two credits. So I'm trying to get your lower legs, lower limbs, oh, course, lower limbs, yeah, lower yeah, limbs yeah, course yeah. coming out. So that's is that yeah. all based on just concepts around rehabbing, below, like lower limb injuries, basically. Yeah, so it's basically it's it's looking at um, you know tissue injury, tissue damage, tissue repair is the first section. Then it's going into uh, a bit about sort of evolutionary and developmental principles. Then it's going into biomechanics of the lower limb, some of the key concepts like we talked about with quad dominance, that kind of thing, uh, sling systems, et cetera, how they interact with the lower limb, the core, and so on. Then we go into specific injuries. So we look at really a, a, a list of the major sports injuries. I think probably, well, they're not even just sports injuries. You know, it's things like osteoarthritis of the hip, osteoarthritis of the knee, rheumatoid arthritis, as, as well as things like, you know, Achilles tendinopathy or anterior cruciate ligament strain, you know. So it's looking at all of those. There's probably about 30 conditions that we look at in the lower limb. Um, mm. And, you know, just a bit of background detail, a bit of how we would manage it using a Czech style approach. 
Um, and then we finish off with just general conditioning principles for the lower limb. Um, so it's pretty, pretty big course. It's kind of yeah. like a scientific core, scientific back cool, type, type level of depth. Cool. Um, but yeah, this is a, it's a prerequisite for the IMS three, which then, you know, we obviously teach you even more about the lower limb on that. So we've, we've created it as a, as a kind of information dense precursor, just like scientific core or scientific mm. back art to IMS one. This is a precursor to IMS three, where we can take you into it in terms of the practical application of it. Cool. I'm doing, detail. I'm doing IMS three this year. But the, awesome. It, yeah. So they haven't got it up on the show. Where, where are you doing that? Is, is that it's, in Australia or is that? No, nah, they're not doing one in Australia. They're doing it at Auckland. So I have to do it digitally. And then they got to do a, uh, a test in, yeah. in Sydney and, and go down to Sydney and do the assessment. Right. And things like yeah. That. yeah. Um, yeah. And for cool. people, people that are getting into because I, I actually did your, your walking tour course, which is all about gait, mm. um, which is mm. really good. Like it makes you understand. <clears throat> it made running fun for me. So like when okay. I went for a run, I was like, fuck, this is what's happening. And then, and then you got a breathing mechanics one, which is because a lot of people, you know, they get into the Wim Hof and stuff like that, but they're, they're not really taught what's happening when they breathe and your breathing course is, yeah. you know, it's only a three hour course and it's on the check shop, but that was that, that just gave you such a good understanding in three hours of like what's going on with, um, with your breath what's actually happening when you breathe what is yeah. a breath you know yeah and uh yeah. and how it all relates to so many symptoms of your breath is shit compared to the next man or the <laughs> woman you know so yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um yeah it's uh, it's surprising how profound an effect just you know having a slightly increased breathing rate or you know an inverted breathing pattern is quite a common thing where people sort of breathing up using their chest muscles which obviously tightens up all the muscles that are involved in this kind of upper cross syndrome right mm -hmm. so you can compound a postural issue by a dysfunctional breathing pattern but also it inhibits or deconditions the core because normally the core should be expanding and contracting with every breath so that's a great example of where you know you get someone who's specialized in core stability and they're giving prone transversus abdominis exercises to their clients uh, well, if they just got them to breathe properly in the first instance, which is again radial field mastery, mm -hmm. or the top of the totem pole, or whatever, yeah. then now they're breathing, you know, twenty-five thousand times a day using their transversus abdominis to exhale, right? So, so that what better conditioning could you get than that? You know, yeah. that's always going to be superior than a prone TVA for a few minutes, right? That's so true. So, yeah, man. That yeah. Was, yeah, that's that's true. So yeah, appreciate that, man. That was yeah, that was amazing. That's one of the favorite podcasts I've ever done. Because for me, I'm just sitting here like relearning yeah. it all again, just soaking <laughs> it in. So it's gold. But um, we have a lot of people that's that cool. will take a lot away from that. And yeah, we'll love to have you on again sometime and go into. Yeah, we'll have to finish off some of those models. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. go into more depth. Yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. we kind of, kind of did about what sixty or seventy percent of each <laughs> yeah, of them. So uh, that, if that, that so that, um, yeah, that we'll one, do that. another one. For Sounds sure, man. Good, man. Right. Appreciate Excellent. it. Yeah. So nice to meet you, man. And um, yeah, yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Cool. See you again soon. See you, mate. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye, mate.